Dreams in every country. Dreams, you know we can work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA. Welcome to the ISA's Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This series was developed by the International Society of Arboriculture and is brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. We provide full-length educational talks by the world's top researchers, educators, and practitioners to keep you up to date with new developments in arboriculture. Today's talk is by John Goodfellow a principal consultant with Biocompliance, Inc. in Redmond, Washington. John has more than 30 years of experience in the electric and gas utility industries and is a principal researcher on several R&D projects focusing on the causes of tree-caused power interruptions. This podcast features his talk on risk associated with tree conductor conflicts. The talk was originally presented at the ISA International Conference in Parramatta, Australia in July 2011. So I had a uh, really fun time putting this presentation together. Uh, at the same time, I was, uh, I guess, maybe not confused, but uncertain is probably the word, as to what level of detail to offer. And so we're going to be down in the weeds, and we're going to be at 40,000 feet. Um, and I'm going to go back and forth. But Ward sort of touched on, um, I think, what's very important. We often jump to conclusions without really understanding why we do things. So those of you that have been parents have had a child between two and three years old, after they get through the terrible twos, entering that, that phase where they question everything. It's like, why? You give them an explanation. Why? They keep drilling. I finally said one time, because. Because why, Daddy? <laughs> so um, th that's how I've approached this issue. Uh, as I began my career, um, I was uh, subject to the folklore, if you will, that I think we all have, um, and these, these um, stories that are handed uh, between the, the, those of us long and tooth and the newbies. And um, things started not to make sense to me. So as I drove around in early in my career and I'd see these quote-unquote burners, yet I knew that there were no interruptions on that circuit, there had been no fires, um, I, I didn't understand what was that about. And we all had a big piece of our programs, which we referred to as hot spotting, because we were convinced that we were going to go out there and prevent these interruptions. Um, and we were spending a lot of money around that. So um, I started to really think those questions through and realize I didn't, I didn't know the answers. And so I talked to some people, engineers and arborists. They didn't know the answers either. But we had all had a number of assumptions that we had made. In fact, I had an article published in T&D Magazine now maybe four years ago, and there was a sidebar in that ar article that was the 10 myths of line clearance pruning. And I'm going to try to give you an understanding of what really is going on, call it the science, call it the physics, um, call it the uh, engineering, uh, what's really going on when a tree comes in close proxi proximity. And the reason I want to do that, and I, I'm going to use some pretty basic terms, so those of you that heard some of this stuff before, bear with me, we're going to get to some uh, more, more uh, detailed stuff. Um, but why I want to do this is because I'm absolutely convinced in a model that says you do failure mode and effect analysis before you can decide on how you're going to address a problem. By address, I mean mitigate. So let's begin. First, I need to establish how big an issue this is. I, frankly, I apologize. I did not go to the Australian literature, but what I was able to do was to put in context the North American, North American experience. So where, where I come from, and uh, pretty much across that, that continent, interruptions caused by trees are typically the leading issue. 
It's also the biggest line item in a maintenance budget. Um, you see the, the metric here. I'm, I'm saying that um, we're spending $3 billion on line clearance. That's probably about the right number. It varies year to year, certainly. And I've backed into that number a couple different ways, talked to some of my colleagues, but I think it's around $3 billion. That's a very, very large expenditure. Look at the next bullet. $40 billion in cost. Now, how did I get to that? Well, there was two studies, uh, EPRI and the Bank of America. And I'll look at my actual data here to give you the real numbers. Uh, Bank of America, looking at commerce, estimated uh, $119 billion of economic consequence due to power outages. EPRI, at the same time, looked at it and got to a number of about $100 billion. So we're, you know, 20% apart, but does it really matter? It's a very big number. The next thing I had to do was to look at the data and said, typically, a third to 40% of the interruptions on many of these power systems are due to trees. So simply applying 40% to a billion, 100 billion, gives you a $40 billion consequence. But we can argue if it's really a third, it's $33 billion, or a quarter, $25 billion, is still a very, very large and significant number. So one of the consequences, certainly, can be described in terms of economics. But there's more than that. Uh, reliability has manifests itself in regards to safety. And of course, there's also public exposure, risk of fires. A couple key things, if you're gonna follow some of the later information, and again, I apologize if this is very basic information, but I'm gonna use three terms, um, and, and I'm gonna describe them in a way that maybe you haven't heard before. Um, but uh, voltage is essentially a measure of a difference, differential between, between two areas of unequal potential. Now, potential is how the, tech, the engineers re refer to voltage, voltage potential. So I can measure the difference between these two areas and express it as voltage. So on a, um, a 12,500 volt distribution line, which would be a common operating voltage in the US, phase to phase energized, the difference between the two conductors is 12,500 volts. Phase to earth is 7,200 volts. Has to do with the fact that these are energies being transmitted as a wave, and there's three phases, 120 degree orientation each, so it's about two thirds of the, it's not, a, it's not half, we'll leave it at that. The next thing we want to talk about is, well, how much? And that's expressed in terms of, of current, measured in terms of amps. And the final term I'll use is, I'll use probably impedance more than resistance. Impedance is the correct word to use when you deal with alternating current systems. But it's essentially a measure of how conductive a medium is. All those three, all those three things come into play when you really try to understand what's going on. And here's the last construct I think you're gonna need before we get into some of the, the, uh, de the details. It's very helpful, so I, I've been in my consulting practice now, beyond the research, I've been doing a bunch of expert witness work, recreating um, accidents involving injuries and fires and things like that. The best way I've found to understand what really happens is to understand what's happening in the context of creating a circuit. In this case, it's a fault circuit or a pathway. And there are a couple key points here, and you can see I've used those measures uh, to describe to you what really is important. We've got two areas of unequal potential. So there's voltage across these two distances. And when they're brought into contact somehow, direct or through some intermediary medium, current will flow. Now it might be really, really low levels of current, if it's a very uh, high impedance or very low conductivity medium, or it could be a great deal of current that flows. The other key point is that success, the circuit is completed and it does work, it's a good thing. If the circuit is completed and it, and it causes problem, it's a bad thing and we refer, refer to it as a fault. Also, if you've been to some of the speakers uh, at this conference, there's an equation that um, they're using it's actually stated uh, in the order that you see here, backwards from what I always thought about, but um, I use this order from the, there's a brand new best management practice that will be published here shortly, I think. 
on uh, tree risk management. And this order is um, reflected in that, that best management practice. The point is the risk has two components. How bad is it and how likely is it that you will have something bad happen? Simply stated, consequences and probabilities. Now, I've, I mentioned the 40 million, excuse me, $40 billion of consequence. You could express it as certainly economics. You can also express it in terms of hours of lost time. Sadly, it could be expressed in terms of numbers of fatalities. There's numbers of ways to do that. But if you think about this equation, it helps you understand uh, the level of risk exposure we, we all face. And then we might be able to think about how to efficiently mitigate or manage that. Okay, so what I want to do is define the consequences in three categories. I mean, there's, there's, there's things that we all talk about, but I guess I would say before I even read them off, or you can read the slide, safety is in every one. So when we talk about why utilities do line clearance work, we all say safety. But what does that mean? It can mean a lot of different things. There can be a safety component to reliability. Life support would be an uh, obvious one. Traffic signals be an obvious one. Um, in the case of sewer lift pumps or water supply, potable water supply pumps, there can be human safety implications for lack of reliability. Certainly, we can talk directly in terms of the adverse exposure that people have. And I'm going to show you some results where I did create tree contacts and measured the kinds of fault current that you would be exposed to, both on the ground and as a climber aloft. And the third thing, and it's certainly uh, been talked about today, and is important to the Australian experience, as well as that of Western North America, the risk of a contact initiating wildfire, bushfire, whatever we'd like to call it, um, but uh, an initiator of fire. Okay, so that's sort of like the foundation. So how do trees cause these adverse events? Well, there's two modes. You remember I said failure mode and effect analysis? Well, there's two modes of, of uh, two modes in which the trees create problems, create risk. You can have a mechanical mode and you can have an electrical mode. And essentially, mechanical is pretty much structural. Uh, something, something structurally breaks in the tree or deflects and uh, brings the, the energy delivery system down. The other one is the short circuit fault. And in the case of the mechanical mode, it can initiate as a mechanical and a result, ultimately, in an electrical fault. But when you think about this, why is this important? The mitigation activities you might do to reduce your risk of mechanical failure might be different than those that you use to reduce your risk of electrical. So if you think about it in very pragmatic terms, you might say clearance addresses the electrical and hazard tree work addresses the mechanical very simplistic uh, statement on my part. It's more complicated than that, but that's why this is important, because we're moving through this failure mode and effect analysis. So basically, as I said, during the mechanical failure, the tree fails structurally, and this is why biomechanics, by the way, is so important to us as utility arborists. Um, and the resultant tree failure either brings down the supporting structures, bring down the conductors, or busts up the equipment. Pretty simple. A um, couple of data points here. One I think is very important. Um, I think actually uh, two-thirds, or 66%, is an understatement. The literature suggests as high as 95% of the events are um, due to structural failure. And I've been off-quoted, and I'll say it again here, but it's not an absolute. Trees do not cause interruptions by growing into lines. Lots of caveats to that. Doesn't happen generally on distribution. Um, but when you consider that, and I said if the electrical mode of failure is addressed by clearance, why is it that we focus on clearance exclusively? Ponder that, because we're going to talk a lot more about that. Uh, the electrical mode of failure um, is back to this fault circuit idea. We've got two areas of unequal potential. Well, what are they? On a multiple phase line, you have three, typically, on a three phase line, three energized circuits, or wires, conductors, excuse me, all one circuit, and a neutral. 
Um, so you can measure a voltage gradient between two of those conductors, and that might be 22,000 volts. You can measure the voltage gradient or potential difference between an energized conductor and a neutral, and it may be 9,500, 10,000 volts, whatever, whatever the phase to, to neutral voltage is. I'm not familiar with 22 kV yet, but I know that's one of the operating voltages you have here. Another place you might measure it is between an energized conductor and a tree, or between an energized conductor and earth. Um, and so those are gonna be important as well. But essentially, you've got phase to phase would be the highest voltage. Phase to a neutral would be a little less than half of that. And phase to earth, the, the difference of voltage could be the same as phase to neutral, but the distance over which that potential is expressed is much longer. So in the case of this electrical mode of failure, basically you have the tree interjecting itself between these areas of unequal potential, and uh, the conductivity of that, con that pathway between is what's important. And, it's and, and the current available then is a function of how conductive that pathway is. And we're gonna talk about a couple attributes in a moment. I keep saying there's more. There's the impedance of the branch itself, but we often don't think about this. There's the impedance between the contact with the conductor and the branch. And it's the same thing as if there's an impedance across my hand to a tree. That's called contact impedance. It's not a small issue. Um, I've got rubber soles on here. I've got contact impedance with the ground. All those things need to be contemplated, understood, I should say, when you think about the, uh, the risk potential of these this, the electrical issues. So, oh, I got ahead of myself a little bit. If you look at those bullets, that's basically a tree fault. You've got uh, the energized conductor, and we've got this current is flowing back, ultimately, to the generator. Either it goes back on the system neutral, or it goes back through the soil, through the earth. Um, you've got this contact between the conductor and the tree. Well, the conductor is round and the tree branch is round and they have electrical characteristics themselves. So you have to overwhelm that initial contact. Then you have flow of current through the branch. Then you have another contact point, potentially when it goes onto the system neutral or onto a person, potentially. And you can just map this path till you get to Earth. And that that's starts to be uh, how you understand what level of risk exposure, because that you could actually calculate then, using Ohm's law, um, the amount of fault current that's available, because you would know the amount of voltage, and we can measure the conductivity of trees, and it's very high. So I'm gonna go through a series of maybe um, eight images here. I was in Australia at, at Brisbane for the um, Australia-Asian Pacific ISA dry run meeting two years ago, and I presented these images, um, and at the end of these images, I showed a little video of, this is from my lab, of what this thing looks like in real time, but I've got something better now. <laughs> We're gonna look at a real fault in a minute. So, so what's happening? First, um, this branch somehow, might have been a mechanical failure of the tree or something, but the branch is introduced. We've just created a circuit. And so when it makes its initial contact, it's got to overwhelm that contact impedance between the conductor and the branch. This is actually, by the way, um, at about 2 kV, no, 3 kV per foot. So this gradient would be on the order of 6 kV per meter, somewhere in that range. It's a pretty high stress gradient. Once you overwhelm those contact points, impedance, you start to have tracking. What's happening there is this area here is going to change. The length of this unaltered tissue is going to change. So you've got tissue in here that's in, in organic forms of carbon. You've got that same carbon showing up out here as charcoal or elemental carbon. The conductivity of those two things is very different. Uh, if you think about the old days, a lot of hotline tools, not just tree tools, but the, the tools that linemen would use were dry, varnished wood handles because wood is not all that conductive. When you get these tracks, you've got a problem. 
Now, there's two things going on. I've got this micro-sparking and sputtering, and I'm making this carbon track, in the, and it's coming from both directions, by the way. That's really important. When you think about this, the first, the, the first thing you think is, well, it's, it's going to come from the line, it's going to go to Earth, it's going to be one-directional. No, it's coming from both directions. But at the same time that this track is flowing, growing, we got current flowing through this branch. Well, it's like a resistive heating element, like a water heater. And so you have the branch heating and warming, and here's evidence of that. That's not smoke. Smoke would be rising. That's a jet of steam as the moisture in the branch is expressed through a lenticel because it's getting darn hot. Track's getting bigger, fault's getting more energetic. Why might that be? Well, it's because of this. This distance is getting shorter. So these are pretty good conductors. You don't get a lot of voltage drop across the track. So the voltage drop is mostly occurring across a distance that's getting shorter and shorter. So if I started out at 6 kV of a meter, and I get down to a half a meter, I got 12 kV across that gap. That's why it's getting more energetic. And more energetic. And more energetic. And at some point, it's going to jump. And it jumps through air across the surface. Doesn't necessarily have to be a continuous track. And this is a key point. We're going to talk about overcurrent protection in a little while. If this is all true, and that branch has been altered from being relatively low conductivity to high, what do you suppose happens when the recloser cycles? That carbon track is there. That branch has been uh, altered, and it doesn't reset. You're closing into a conductive pathway. So that's important to think about. If the fault provided by the branch is persistent, then reclosing into it is not going to do you a lot of good. So, Mr. Soundman, um, I enjoyed last evening a look at uh, the Southern Cross, but I couldn't find it. So I, somebody had an iPhone that had all these neat apps. Is anybody an app, uh, iPhone app with a timer on it? Because you might want to start. This is going to take a while um, on purpose because I wanted to show you what really happens. Now this is Hackberry Branch. Um, uh, let's see, what else can I say? 72 kV, uh, 7.2 kV, excuse me. Um, the points of contact are represented by these short pieces of conductor. The thing is laying there, so we do truly have contact impedance. When I do these accident re uh, recreations, it's real important I use the same diameter conductor because the contact impedance would vary. I don't think that's running. There she goes. Go ahead. That's what I was supposed to say, huh? All right, sorry. So uh, what do you see? Nothing. That's the contact impedance. And if you watch closely, at either end of the insulators, it's going to puncture finally. It's going to overwhelm the contact impedance. You see little puffs of smoke coming off. And um, first takeaway then is when a branch falls into the line, it's not bang-o-wham-o immediately, on a distribution line anyway. Okay, so you see a little sparkling now. A little, so we've, now we've overwhelmed the contact impedance. Still not a lot going on here. Um, if we had a uh, ammeter on this circuit, we would be seeing milliamps, maybe five milliamps of fault current flowing. Uh, not very much. And at the same time, we're um, starting the track. Once in a while, you'll see a little jet of steam coming off. So I've always described this as a race. Which wins, the development of the, contact, the carbon track, or does it dry out and just sits there? A little more energetic now. I was going to annotate the whole thing, but I think I'm just going to be quiet and guys soak up what this is doing. I don't know if you can tell, there's two different colors of quote-unquote smoke. Well, there's a, there's a jet of steam right there. The steam is whiter, and the smoke has got a blue tint to it. And I can't help it, i got to annotate this. You're also going to see 
it get active and then sort of collapse. Then get active, sort of collapse. That's the tension between the track developing and the, the pathway drying out and becoming less conductive. Anybody time in this thing? We're into it. Couple minutes? All right, yeah. There's some more steam coming off, so there's quite a bit of current. You see that steam is pushing a lot of energy through that branch, heating it up, which is drying it out, which is making it less conductive, and slows down again. Okay, on the right, you can see there's a conductor between those two insulators. There's actually two points of contact. And now the branch that's further into the depth of field on that fork is now it's starting to get active. And it had gotten kind of quiet. Now it's going to get quite active. You can see the track. And now we actually have open flame. When we talk about the cause of risk of fire, just remember these images. Now we've got activity you can see out this far and all the way up here. So the voltage differential across there is really starting to get high, expressed as kV per meter. Oh, it's drying out, but not for long. Now you can hear that 60 cycle hum. Still hasn't interrupted. Yeah, thanks. Um, so how long did it take, Kevin? Yeah, so like four minutes. Um, there's only about five amps on there, and most of the line fuses are about 10. So we didn't have yet a fault that the protection system would interrupt. Okay, can you give me back my screen there? Thank you. Okay, so we went, wait, I'll, we went back to the beginning. I'll just quick blast through here. Because I want to show you something, a still image of what we just stopped with. Where is the arc at this point? It's not on the branch. There's a couple key points here. We all think, well, I think I thought anyway, the trees potentially had the, re the, they had the potential to represent a unique kind of fault. Now, they just initiate it. What happens is you get a plasma of air, ionized air. The arc lifts off the branch and it's sustained through air until the fault current gets high enough to either operate a fuse or a, a recloser. So um, this is essentially a surrogate for phase spacing on a distribution line like we have in North America at a voltage that's very, very common for overhead distribution. You have a higher voltage for this. It would happen faster, but it would happen essentially in the same way. Okay. So now we talked about the pathway, the fault model, and how it all happens. But we haven't talked about the interruption yet. So the first thing is where the fault occurs on the system makes a huge difference. Um, and what the fault is manifest as in terms of an interruption and ultimately an outage to customers, uh, or excuse me, I should say that outage and interruption to customers, is a function also of where it occurs and what kind of protection it sees upstream from it. Um, and all elements of a distribution system do not represent the same risk. So why would we not only say it's all about clearance, and the clearance is the same everywhere? And that's just, clearance is one step removed from reliability. So um, as I learned in the last couple days, and I heard a comment, um, a couple comments at the speakers over the last yesterday's, yesterday morning and today's session, the notion that you would have two and a half meters of clearance on a 240-volt bare circuit streetlight wire is um, not addressing the risk. So that is something we should be thinking about working with the regulator on. On the other hand, if you have multi-phase lines with conductors in close, close phase spacing, higher risk, much higher risk. And the consequences on the feeders, because more people are attached, are higher. And if it's a segment of line that the first upstream device is the stub substation breaker, it is really high. If you have big, long cross arms versus compact instruction, very different risk profiles. Because if you think about how that, that fault developed, 
it is not about the voltage, it's about the voltage gradient. Let's look at that a little bit further. Um, kind of got ahead of myself. Let's talk about protection for a minute yet. So those are the kinds of, at a very basic level, the kinds of overcurrent protection that you'd see in a distribution system. Um, and, and breakers, as I'm using the term, refer to uh, those breakers protecting the substation transformers. Uh, reclosers and sectionalizers are like breakers. They're just out on the line. Um, and so a breaker will protect the entire circuit. A recloser or a sectionalizer, sectionalizer will report, protect a portion of the circuit. And a fuse, of course, is out beyond the recloser's. And uh, each one of these, and, and let's acknowledge, there are some that don't have any protection on them um, other than the station breaker. Let's recognize that these things um, mean different things. These pieces of equipment represent uh, different outcomes or consequences. So we have the same fault initiated, but depending on what's protecting it, you get very different results in terms of the consequences. It may be two or three customers, or it may be 2,000 because it's the entire circuit that goes down. Another thing that we can talk about is how these devices coordinate with each other. There are two basic philosophies. One is the bias to blow fuses, and one is the bias to preserve fuses. In the fuse blow, the fuses, uh, the breaker or recloser is set slower than the burn times on the fuses. So when it sees a fault, the first line of defense is you're gonna blow a fuse, and then the recloser or breaker closes back in, hoping that that fuse open the, the faulted line segment and everything comes back but that one piece. What has happened in the last several years with increasingly um, sophisticated technologies, we're kind of almost outsmarting ourselves because now we have the ability to set the breakers to operate faster than the fuses. So the first thing it does is the breaker opens, dumps everybody, hopes that it's a transient, not a permanent fault, but a transient fault, closes back in goes through a couple of those, and it says it must be a permanent fault, then it closes in and stays closed, and the fuse blows. Well, what does that mean? If you bias to save fuses, you create momentaries, because you got these breakers cycling, or recloser cycling. If you bias to blow fuses, you've got fewer people affected, but you've got a lot longer response time, and if it happened that it wasn't a persistent fault, but a, tra a transient fault, you could have, the system could have self-healed itself. So um, I guess the lesson or the message I want to give to the utility arborists at this point is that you can't measure your program's effectiveness in terms of SATI duration because you get way different durations depending on how the overcurrent system is set up. Second message, I'm going to say this again later, once the fault is initiated by a tree, it's like any other, and it's the overcurrent protection system that, dis, that, turn, that turns it into the outage. And, and so it's not the trees that cause momentaries. And we've all been suckered into that, down that road that, oh my gosh, it's trees causing momentaries. It's not. Okay, let's, let's uh, shift gears for a minute here now. Here are some real data. Um, and if you think about uh, what this is measuring, this is the conductivity of various kinds of faults. So, um, bolted fault, direct metal-to-metal -metal contact, nearly zero, very, nearly zero impedance. So you go down through here, you look at different things, conductors down, lying on the ground. These are the kinds of impedances. If you're familiar with scientific notation, this comes out of some of my research, orders of magnitude higher. In other words, the tree contacts are extremely high impedance or not very conductive at all. But as I said, conductors down on asphalt, conductors on concrete, conductors on the ground, they can stay down and they can stay energized. And frankly, the further out on the circuit, the more likely that is to happen because you have um, the, the uh, conductivity of all of the wires between that fault and the substation isn't zero, and they limit the amount of fault current that'll be available, and the system will see these things essentially as load, won't recognize it as a fault. Okay, 
We'll come back to the fire issue, but you've seen now open flame a couple times, so I guess you get an idea. There's something to this tree line contact and fire. Here's a result of some real work. These are real data. I've had the good fortune of being able to uh, recreate tree faults and do a lot of measurements. And uh, if you're not familiar with this, is basically, whoops. Each one of those is a resistive element. And I, I hope you can see these numbers. 200 plus or minus ohms. This is height above ground. So this would be the main stem. As we go up, we start to get kilo ohms. And we get up in there at 87,500 ohms as opposed to 200 ohms. What that says is the conductivity close to the branches, uh, the branches up in the crown are very, very much less conductive than the main stem. That's a good message. Basically, the vast majority of the voltage drop occurs up in here. Now, why is that a good message? Well, because it limits the exposure to a climber or to someone on the ground, and it uh, limits the amount of current that would be coming through one of what these are called high impedance faults. Um, so they represent very low risk to public exposure. They're not high enough to create open flame. These are the um, incidental contacts that in North America, except for the cases of California and Oregon, um, is pretty much industry practice to accept about 10% of the trees on a circuit having made some sort of incidental contact with the line before you perform preventive maintenance. In the two exceptions I mentioned, they have mandated clearances. More good news. Again, data from about 2,000 runs in my lab, 22 different species. It's kind of a messy data set at this point, but here's the, here's the lesson. Voltage gradient, and I'm sorry I didn't convert this. It comes from an earlier presentation. I should have gone to the metric me uh, metrics, metric metrics. Um, but you can do the conversions as easily as I. The key point is the shape of this curve and what it's expressing. This thing is heading towards zero and it's gonna intercept somewhere in here. It says that below a certain voltage gradient, we were unable to create any fault. Now, in the case of the North American experience, again, I'm gonna go with feet, uh, apologize for that. But if we are looking at a standard distribution line and we are looking at phase spacing of some 60 inches between the energized conductor and the neutral, that that is on the order of about 1.2 kV a foot and the voltage gradient is too low to cause an eruption. That's why the, the likelihood of a short circuit by a grow-in on a single phase line is so low as to be largely improbable based on the science. Okay, so what are some of the key lessons from that? Um, that one slide I showed earlier is that up to 95% of the interruptions and outages are caused by uh, mechanical damage. And this electrical short circuit is only generated when there's already a mechanical damage. And by that, I mean that you have to have a branch break or fail or something falling into a line. It can't grow incrementally through a growing season um, because the rate of change of contact is so low and the diameter of that fleshy apical meristem is so small and such high impedance that you basically have a little electrical pruning. I think it's a thermal thing. I think you basically are desiccating tissue, killing the terminal bud. Uh, you're getting some wilted leaves. They're not burned, they're wilted, dried out, uh, yet we've called them burners. Okay, and the other lesson I've said a couple times now is truly, there is nothing unique about tree-initiated faults in regards to how they're manifest as interruptions to customers or outages. Once it gets going, it's, it's the overcurrent system that tells you what it becomes in terms of numbers of people and durations. Okay, so that describes 
sort of like how the risk develops, and we can almost turn that into probabilities. But what, how can we measure the consequence? Well, I gave you the one metric at a, at a North American level for business of 40, 30 billion dollars, um, but we can do some other things. That's almost one step removed. Um, you might call that an externality in the, con in the context of economics. There are some direct costs of the utility. There's a cost to restore, a cost to repair, cost of lost energy sales. Let's look at them just for a moment, quickly. Cost to restore, you run the crew out there. Cost to repair, after they're done putting the system, putting service back, they go back and do the repair. It might be a expensive repair. It might involve materials, but it's also quantifiable. Loss of revenue, well, you can make some assumptions, but you know what, truthfully, it's a very small number because most of these interruptions caused by trees, except for the big, big multi-interruption uh, days during big storms, um, are not that long. And so you don't really lose a lot of energy because things like water heaters just come back on once the power's back on. In other words, the big loads come back. So it's not like I'm out for an hour for 1,000 people so I can figure out what kilowatt hours per 1,000 people is multiplied by 60 minutes. No, it's much less than that. Um, I mentioned this indirect cost. It can be very, very significant. What are the safety implications? Well, the lack of reliability has a number of manifestations, and you can probably quantify that. Now, my purpose today is not to give you the answer, but to show you how you'd work through the analysis. Okay, so we've got some information now, but there's more, and this is stuff that I think we can all relate to. Um, the likelihood of a tree causing a problem on the power system is not uniformly distributed spatially. It's not random, and it's not equally any, at any given point. I mentioned that it's not equal consequences because depending on where the system, the type of infrastructure, three-phase or single-phase or secondary lines, very different consequences. But you have sites. If you map on your system where the interruptions occur, you'll find they're going to cluster. There are sites that are higher risk. It might have to do with the type of infrastructure, but I think a lot of it has to do with environmental features. It might have to do with slope, slope soil, soil wetness, may have to do with an, a, a poor match between the species on the site and the site characteristics itself. So the biotic and abiotic components, there may just be a poor match there. Um, or there may be some characteristics to a species, uh, might be that the pathogen has moved through in a pocket. I guess the point is though, why would we treat it all the same? Because we know it's not. That's another thing to think about. I'm, I'm certainly suggesting a more complex means of doing vegetation management, but you need to factor these things in. I don't know that you would find these, but I would bet you a week's salary that if we did a study in Australia or New Zealand, we will find these three things are also true for this environment. So based on all my work, I came up with a formula. <laughs> and this could be uh, the subject of a workshop. It could hours about it, but let me just give you in a nutshell. The risk to reliability, or R, due to trees, sub T, is a function of the location of the tree on the circuit. So that would be, is it protected by a breaker and everybody, at, everybody downstream is at risk, or is it on the end of a lateral? Loc location of the tree. The voltage gradient, because we said that under some level of voltage, you won't have an interruption. You can't, you don't have enough stress between the two areas of unequal potential. It's also vitally important to consider, I don't know what else to call this, it's the rate of change. So a, a high rate of change would be a hazard tree falling into a line or a branch breaking. The fault pathway is introduced in a very short period of time as opposed to a growing. The diameter and the species are important to consider as well because that affects the conductivity of the pathway. Big pathways are conductive. I showed you that schematic. Big sections of tree, 200 ohms. Little branches, 200, uh, almost 200,000 ohms. Orders of magnitude different. And the species does have an influence. How do you mitigate 
the risk to reliability. Well, you know, this is stuff I don't know I'm going to spend a lot of time on because I think you know a lot of it already. Um, clearance is important because it's something we can actually work with. But don't get stuck on clearance being the only thing. R frequent inspections, I'm a strong advocate of. Hazard tree work, again, what we're thinking about is we're trying to identify the risk of mechanical failure, and you're going to do that by looking frequently because things change in the field. But don't forget that it isn't just you tree guys. The engineers and the protection engineers in particular own a piece of this. And you can mitigate some of the exposure just by changing the protection sc uh, scheme. And I don't want to miss this last one. Yes, alterations to infrastructure. I'm not saying you'd underground the entire system. Certainly not. Uh, there's coated wire. We call it tree wire. There's aerial spacer cable. You could relocate. All of those represent a very expensive solution. But if you buy into the notion that one size fits all is wrong, then there are absolutely some sites that you will not get the level of reliability or risk reduction that you need by simply doing more tree work. And you have to change the way you're doing things. Okay, I mentioned earlier, this is why I became so in interested in biomechanics. Because now we understand that the electrical thing is actually not that big a deal. It's the structural thing. And um, this could be a whole other talk. <laughs> Um, but, but we're starting to really understand um, how branches break. Did this study, um, I think we've all been disciplined in school to look at the branch union. And the branches don't break at the union generally. The branches break, what I'm coining as a critical fracture zone, some 5 to 10% out their length from the union. They, f they fail in a very predictable manner. This is a classic failure curve. What you have is adding weight or force, branches resisting. It's elastic. And as you get to a certain point, you overwhelm, you get a crushing of the fibers in compression. Adding compression, you just can't resist a lot more weight, but it doesn't fail until it fails in tension ultimately. Um, it's, a, it's a classic thing. The, the point is, we might be able to do something about overhead, uh, overhanging brand, uh, lines with overhanging branches knowing that without having to remove them. And what I'm talking about there is branch lightning. Ward's giving me a high sign, so I'm going to actually, I've been going fast, but I'm going to pick up the tempo here. <laughs> All right, human exposure. Well, what's that look like? Uh, it can be expressed in terms of property damage, and it can be expressed in terms of implications for human contact. So I did two studies. Uh, both of these also could be full presentations I apologize, I'm blasting through this, but there's a couple takeaway lessons that I think are important to know. So again, I was working with voltage classes that are common, at least in North America, 7.5, 7.2, those are the 12.5 or 13.8 circuits. In other words, a 15 kV class and a 35 kV class, phase to earth is 19.9. Um, we, we basically created faults in living, growing trees I uh, had them all wired up. This happens to be uh, a person. So if you think about my fault pathway scenario, I've got my contact at the, in the crown. I come across the bark. I go down the branch, go down the main stem. I go across the bark to a hand, and then I go from the hand through the body, and then I go out the bottom of there to a plate on the ground weighted with cinder blocks. So I've created a fault circuit the reason I use this little resistor here is because we have impedance measures in our bodies as well. Well, what did, it, what, did, what did we do? Well, from left to right, this is a pin oak branch going from the outer, it's a very long branch, from the outer tip to just about where it joins the main stem. And you can see the results of those progressive series of contacts. When I look at current, which is really what kills you, um, you can see as we get closer, closer in, that happens to be that point right there, this is milliamps, so I have about one amp of fault current. That will kill you. On the other side, the good message is when you're down in here, out in the tips, you got between one and 10 milliamps. So humans can't even detect the current until you get about two or three. So it's a very low level of current exposure. And we just are not 
seeing a lot of uh, injuries by people walking up and touching a tree in contact. Well, the next question, the next year was, well, what about climbers? Did essentially the same experiment, same kind of gear, there's my human. We put a hand position and a foot position, recreated the faults, and again, we found that things were, so I should go back. I'm not saying that it's no risk. I'm gonna say if you maintain your minimum approach distances, distances you'll be adequately protect, protected. But as that distance of pathway between your hand or foot position and the conductor gets shorter, the level of voltage exposure goes up and you can get into trouble. The first thing you would get is a sensation and hopefully you'd realize you're in trouble. Next thing you'd get is you can't let go. Next thing you get, you're knocked out of the tree, depending on what level that first contact is, or you can get up to the point where you have um, voltage through your chest and you could go into a cardiac arrest. Or further up, you could get burned. Um, so it's not, I'm not saying it is unlikely. I'm saying that with the minimum approach distances we have, you should be okay. There's a special case that I think we all as professionals need to uh, certainly be thinking about. And when I coined this phrase, I don't think I actually coined it. It's been used in the industry. A readily climbable tree. These are some trees that are different than all others. They have three characteristics. They're big enough that you can get into a position that causes you trouble. You can get into the tree to get to that position. And once you get there, you can actually hit, reach out. Um, I, I'm telling you that only a small percentage of the trees on a power system are of this characteristic. This concludes John Goodfellow's discussion on risk associated with tree-conductor conflicts. If you'd like to learn more about utility arboriculture, you can find additional materials at the ISA web store, including the best management practice for utility pruning of trees. If you'd like to receive CEUs for today's talk, the code for this quiz is SA1289. Again, SA1289. If you have other topics that you would like us to provide podcasts for, please feel free to contact Luana Vargas at the ISA office in Champaign, Illinois, or me, Tom Smiley, at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory. Thank you for listening to this episode, which was brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. Trees in every country. Trees, you know we can. Work together and learn what we need the challenge traditional skills and modern techniques whatever language you speak you have a world to offer every day climb with the isa